0: Today's episode is sponsored by Scarlet Inc., a newsletter on leadership, management, and interviewing, written by Dave Anderson, an ex-Amazonian director and bar raiser, and today's guest. If you enjoy the content on this podcast, I highly recommend you check out Scarlet Inc. at scarletinc.com. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon Podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon Podcast. I'm pleased to welcome Dave Anderson back to the show as our first returning guest. I originally spoke with Dave in episode 16, so if you missed that episode, be sure to go back and hear more about Dave's nearly 12-year career journey at Amazon. Today, I'm excited to dig into a new topic with Dave, Amazon's frugality leadership principle. Dave, welcome back. Thanks, Tyler. It's sort of
1: funny to come back for the frugality episode because so many people want to dodge talking about frugality since it uh, tends to be not so popular. (laughs)
0: and I'd like to get into a little bit of that stigma around why maybe it is unpopular at Amazon. Before we do this and I, and I know I didn't give you a heads up about this, but I came across this topic because you were writing about it in your Scarlet Ink newsletter. And the other thing that stood out to me is your landscape and nature photography. Thank you. So for those that haven't checked out the Scarlet King newsletter that Dave writes, he adds a lot of photographs he takes across the Cascades, the Puget Sound, the Mount Rainier National Park, um, really beautiful. But, but before we dive into frugality, Dave, and I know this is off the cuff, but you come across as somebody that is very thoughtful Uh, and very introspective on these topics of of leadership and organization structure and career progression. And I'm curious to know, how do you see your time spent outdoors and away from work, away from the office as integral to your thoughts on leadership?
1: Yeah, I think in some ways, to answer it a roundabout way, if your team is dealing with a whole bunch of Sev2s, that's the emergency pages coming in, and if everyone on the team is heads down on solving those, let's say for eight hours a day, it's very hard to solve the root cause. It's just something I would, you, you see all the time is the team is sitting there frantically fixing, not not solving in some ways, but like fixing the problems. And if you're doing that constantly, you'll feel like in some ways, like you're treading water, right? You're, you're just solve a problem. Another one pops up. You solve a problem. Another one pops up. And I found it's amazing. We, we talk about doing offsites as leaders. Um, and it's not just a way to go to a fancy hotel and spend some money, but it takes a lot to take a step back and say, ignoring the day-to-day, ignoring the things that are distracting us, how do I think about this in the long run? How do I think about it? Um, uh, You know, they talk about like from first principles, like, okay, we have X problems. Those can be solved by, you know, uh, I don't know, a servers are going down frequently in aws okay why do they go down they go down to due to x y and z okay how would we make them not go down uh, going down is not poly- you know it's like they're power outages okay so it could be a hardware solve has anyone talked to the hardware team yes or no uh okay now the the problem with it is that it causes an interruption for the customers well how would we prevent that you know keep it running well we already talked about that well the other side would be to fix it fast okay how do we fix it fast automatically. And so you like I think it's hard to do that while you have a sev 2 open and you're quickly corresponding to customers and peer teams while you're rebooting the server. And if you immediately finish rebooting that server and go to the next ticket where you reboot a server, you're never going to solve the problem. That's for a sev 2, you know, for outages. But I think the same thing happens when you want to solve problems for your own team, especially the longer term problems of like it just seems like we're sort of going downhill, not going uphill. Like you want to be going in the right general trajectory. Same thing for like standing in the shower and just thinking, you know, people say sometimes they have their best ideas while in the shower. I think that's because you're getting your mind out of what's going on normally and you just clear your mind. And the same thing is if I sit there and walk for six hours, you have nothing much to do. I mean, I sit there and try to guess the flavor of jelly bellies as I toss them in my mouth sometimes. But you also sit there and think like, you know what I don't like is that I have half my team in on-call. Like that, that just feels broken. How can I go about fixing that? Like I want I want to get down to one on call by next year. Like, what would I have to believe to make that happen? And I, I, that's why I just like for me, that's same thing. You know, some people talk about meditation, some people do the offsites again. You can block some time on your calendar and just forcibly not think about what's happening now, but where you want to be. But that that's how I think about it.
0: I really like that. As I listen to your thoughts on that, it really, I think, dovetails into why I like this topic so much of frugality, because it's easy to, when there's a problem and things are going downhill, to use your words, throw resources at it, right? But in putting the problem into context, taking a step back and having a fresh set of eyes, sometimes it's that you're not making the right trade-off or the right prioritization. And it's not just a matter of throwing resources at it. So today, we're obviously going to talk about the frugality principle. And I alluded to a little bit early in the conversation, this is an often misunderstood principle. And it's easy to think that, hey, Amazon is frugal in that they don't give free lunches or free parking, or you know they make leaders fly coach. And, and certainly those cost savings do have a place, but I don't think that that is really at the core of this leadership principle. So for those that have not recently read Amazon's stated leadership principle, frugality is defined as accomplish more with less, constraints breed resourcefulness, self-sufficiency, and invention. There are no extra points for growing headcount, budget size, or fixed expense. So with that as an introduction, I think it's helpful to understand in context, like what the headcount allocation process looks like or, or how that process works at Amazon. So maybe to start there, can you help paint that picture for us, Dave? Yeah, I think um
1: best way I can describe it would be from an example. I was working in devices, and I ran the tech teams for the kids' software in devices. So it's like tablets and stuff like that. What you have is a bunch of projects, especially as you get lower level, it becomes more specific, is a bunch of projects you ask for headcount for, and you're going to get some of them. For the most part, it's, it's like money. Headcount is money at leadership levels. And uh, <laughs> you, you spend it in the areas in need, and that's definitely where a lot of the frugality stuff comes into play. And sometimes that does mean, hey, you are at 123 people, you're going to go down to 90. Tell me what happens. Like, I'm, I'm you know, terribly sorry, it's going to suck. What happens when you go down to 90? Because I need to do this other thing. And that's where we get to like the sort of zero based accounting of your previous year's size does not have to have any relation to your next year's size, which is always interesting.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit more. How does this approach factor into balancing maintaining existing products and features versus creating New products and features.
1: Yeah, uh, usually what you want to spend money on is is increasing the revenue and the profit of Amazon. I mean, that's it's, it's a corporation. You know, <laughs> that's the first principles. Uh, we want to make money, and so if you are a business that expects to make a lot more money the next year, if you accomplish some certain projects, that re- the the headcount associated with that probably makes sense to do. You know, if I'm like, hey, per headcount, I will make us one point five million dollars more. You say, yeah, that's a decent place to spend some headcount. I will do it. If, on the other hand, you are a flat business, let's just take a look at, let's just say Echoes. You're like, okay, the Echo business line has been increasing for the last few years at 6% a year consistently, and your projects will probably not move the needle. You know, sometimes you look at the projects and like, hey, we're going to add uh, French. So we're going to add French. It'll probably, you know, increase our customer base by 0.7%. And you look at that and say, you know, it'd be nice to get 0.7% more. It might pay for the headcount, but it's not the best way to use it. And in fact, your business is not growing anymore. You know how we can make it more profitable over the next three years? Is by taking 10 headcount away. And so that's the way like a lot of these things work is you're looking at the math of looking out three, five years on some of these businesses and saying we can either move the needle up a small amount with a certain amount of headcount, or we can increase the profitability by taking headcount away. And it's often the like... um, the two, the two pivots is more headcount to drastically increase revenue or less headcount to drastically increase profit margin. And that's sort of the levers that they frequently are turning on these businesses. And at a leadership level, because we're all selfish in some ways, for our business, we don't want to be on the increasing profit margin necessarily. Is a very good thing business-wise to do. It just tends to be less fun. Um, and so I think a lot of us spend a large portion of our mental effort trying to figure out how do we make our business one of the fast-growing, businesses that is very exciting to innovate on rather than the businesses that's turning the screw on frugality to try to say, let, let's let get as much profit margin as we can without screwing over the
0: business itself. You know, one of the things that I recall from Amazon is that it's really easy to come to Amazon with this outside perspective of, you know, if I can justify the revenue that this headcount will bring in, then that should be good enough. And really the mindset of Amazon is not, hey, you know, an additional fixed headcount will add half a million dollars to your revenue. It's rather what billion dollar opportunities can we go after with additional headcount? And so it's thinking really big. And one principle that, that you've brought up in the past, Dave, is this idea of putting the roadmap before the resources. Can you tell us a little bit more, as a leader at Amazon, what did this process look like for you? What would you consider in terms of Roadmap before you even got to that, okay, what resources do I need to go fight for during this allocation process?
1: yeah, what I would frequently tell my teams is like, please ignore how many people you have now because it may be less next year, it might be more. It could be a lot more, and it could be a lot less. Uh, we have shut down projects before that were barely paying for headcount because we don't want to barely pay for headcount. We want to make huge amounts of money, we want to make billion dollar bets spending you know, 500,000 on an expensive engineer and making 550,000 on them is a terrible use of money for Amazon. You're technically making a $50,000 profit, but that's nowhere near what we're looking for. We're looking for getting again, billion dollar businesses kicked off. So when you start at roadmap first, you want to look at each of these products. And you know, that goes from devices, what should devices be investing in? What's the next device? What's the next thing we need to do? What's the what's the big bets we should be making? Um, Big bets is used frequently as a discussion point. Uh, all the way down to the individual teams what is your team's big bet what is the thing you really need to focus on what is your must-have and the must-have includes running your business so you know you, you might stack rank things and saying step one definitely need at least one on-call person to watch for all the problems for our customers um and then you want to look and say forgetting six months from now like three years from now where does this team need to be um if you're the website for parents um uh, for the kids devices, right? you're thinking like, okay, imagine three years from now, what is the biggest thing we could possibly do for our business to be more successful? And those are the things that you're, you're trying to think, like, how do I go in that direction? This Is sort of like, um, if you're familiar with the three year planning process, you take a look at where do you want to be in three years, you, you start from there, and then you work backwards and say, therefore, you know, therefore, 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 this is what we should do this year, working backwards. And so if you say in a few years, we want parents to have this website be their bookmark because they find it as the very best way to get their kid to read is by using our parent website. Like that is the the way most parents teach their kids to read is through this really cool feature we're going to build. Then you work backwards and you say, okay, number one, we're going to need headcount for our on-call. Number two, we want headcount to build the beginning frameworks of this parent reading dashboard thing. And you put that in order of your priorities. You explain why those are important. And then we take the resources for our entire organization and we say, what do we want to spend money on? And that's how that's how the teams get their size. You look at that and say, well, I need that check. I need that check. And you go down the list until you get to the "Ah, do we do we need that? Do We really need that. And again, that for a team might mean that they went from eight people down to five. And it might mean for a team that they went from eight people to 16 or 25. And that's one of the really cool things beyond the like frugality aspect. I think some of frugality is about you don't get bonus points for increasing headcount, but part of the way you're allowed to move things around is by caring more about the roadmap than about how many resources, you know, like, Oh, boy, I don't know if we can really grow your team by 50%. It's like, Oh, come on, we've grown teams by 12,000%. I mean, it's, you do what you need to do to accomplish what you want. And it's the accomplishing that matters.
0: I think what's so key there, again, is this zero sum accounting of it doesn't matter what a team had two years ago, That's not the benchmark for what it's going to have next year. It's, as you said, like, what are those big bets that the team is making? And then what do we have to have? Not nice to have. What do we have to have to go after those big bets that have been prioritized? Dave, I assume that over the many years you were at Amazon, at some point you oversaw products or programs that were more mature, right? They weren't the big bet of the year. Maybe they were a big bet a few years prior and and had been validated and now we're a little bit more mature product within Amazon. What does this look like for a product or a program that maybe at one point was a big bet and had a lot of resources and is now that steady state or, or more mature product? How, how would you think about an area of the business like that as a leader? So I, I, I ran
1: Seller Central, which is the Website for sellers. I mean, I've heard of it. The marketplace, yeah, yeah. Anyone, anyone who did anything to do with marketplace would have heard of Seller Central. So, among other things, I was running Seller Central. The individual features were frequently built by other teams. We were like the framework. We were the website itself. But then there's dozens of teams contributing features to your website. But if you're the website itself, when you first launch, you are the hot thing. You are you are the website. Therefore, you got as much resources as you needed to get that thing launched. Once we're running for a number of years. It becomes like, well, as a framework, are you doing what you need to do or are you providing the availability of a website so that the ordering team can make this really cool ordering feature or make the FBA by merchants whatever feature that they want to build? In which case, there's no need to spend more resources on your team. What we really want is your team just to exist. And so we definitely had periods inside of my org where the Seller Central team specifically didn't have many features that really needed to be done. We mostly wanted it to keep working. And so... um, you sort of pivot a lot of the team instead of here's this other cool idea we have, here's this other cool idea we have, because cool ideas are in many ways are frequently about growth. You, you pivot the cool ideas to the, in, I don't know, they're still cool, but efficient ideas of right now we have two and a half on call, which is fine if we have 14 headcount on the Seller Central team. We want to pull that down to like 11 people on the Seller Central team. Like, okay, what what does that mean? Well, we don't want to keep three on call. We want to get that down to two or one on call. Like how do... How do we beat that operational burden down? And so sometimes, in fact, you like I was talking about being flexible about how your team will spend resources. I propose 14, I get 11. I might change some of that 11 from what I had before of, of cool ideas now to I'm going to spend three people just to reduce operational burden. We are going to spend the next nine months getting rid of these sources of tickets because if this team needs to go to a lower headcount number, I do not want to be spending you know, 30% or 40% of my head going on on call. I want that to be 20%. I want to knock that down. And so that'd be one way it feels different, I think, on those teams is, and in fact, the only way it can be feel satisfactory, I think, is when you say, hey, if we're going down to, you know, life support, operational excellence, like trying to not build new things, but just make it continue to run, you make it more interesting for the engineering team by saying, cool, now that this is the time when then we button things down, we make them higher quality, we Get rid of those little annoyances that have been bothering us for a while because this thing needs to run as hands off as possible.
0: I really like how that ties into the long term thinking in ownership mentality and principle at Amazon in that you anticipate where I need to get my business. And so what are you going to do today with the resources you have today to glide path into that? Is there an example from your experience, Dave, where you knew you would need to reduce headcount in a part of your business? And can you talk us through what you did or what steps you took to prepare for that?
1: Well, I think, I mean, I, I seller central was literally one of the examples because we did have a building phase and then we ended up in a place where the framework itself was good enough like it just the other teams were not it, especially when you're a central team like that you get a lot of your projects from other teams and you just realize other teams are asking for less because they're spending more of their time just building on your platform rather than asking for features you know we can't do this unless you do x well that sort of tails off if you have enough of x you know if you have enough features they're just busy so i did have A couple years of the majority of my platform business did not have much innovation needed it was more about operational excellence and so i did go through a couple cycles where the overall headcount was decreasing and that team needs were going to decrease and so that was essentially what i did was spent some time deleting some of the medium important projects to add in reducing operational cost and part of it is like you're talking about uh, a long-term thoughts I want the team to be really fun to be on. You're going to have a hard time retaining people already on a team that's not doing the next Alexa. Like, it's just always a challenge. Retention is one thing that matters for long-term success of a team. And so how do you make a team that's not necessarily building the next Alexa, how do you make that at least more pleasant, enjoyable, whatever to be on? One thing is, well, how do we get our operational burden down? How do we make sure that the person on call sits around and watches TV and not deals with pages all night? And so... Frequently, if you look at your projects and who requested them, the medium term, mildly interesting projects from the engineering point of view come from product managers like, hey, can we change the dropdown for country picker on Seller Central to be easier to click? Like not the most interesting engineering thing. I understand why product managers wanted those kind of projects. I would go delete and I'd add in rebuild the country picker API to be. More sustainable, distributed better, whatever the problem was that the engineers wanted to deal with, and so in fact, I would say that's one of the biggest pivots I usually saw with those kinds of teams, and certainly I did was a higher percentage of the team's projects came from the engineering team when their headcount was cut. It comes down to like essentially you know we have to batten down hatches and make this thing sustainable, and the only way this team's going to be interesting to be on for the next couple of years, a few years until whatever you know things change is going to be let's get those engineering projects done. Let's get this project, uh, this, this product to a really high engineering quality because I've also seen the opposite where teams will try to accomplish all their cool projects with just less headcount. And that's where you end up with the 50% attrition on the team because trying to accomplish more with less through just working hard instead of smart. And so I don't think that that works in the long run.
0: Listening to these examples, it really brings to mind the Amazon idea of it's always day one. Needing to ask these existential questions of your own business, no matter how developed, old, mature they are, right? Like it's really easy to think, hey, this is a lot of people use this. These are all of our users. This is how much revenue we're bringing in. So we should keep doing this and and what else should we be doing? But to ask, you know, what would happen if we didn't do this? What would be required to keep those users? What is just a nice to have? Like asking those questions seems like a great way to stay in this Always day one mentality of why are we doing what we're doing? Let's not take anything as just given and make sure that we're operating like a startup. Yeah. This has been really insightful to talk through as a leader how you think about the different items that you green light on your roadmap or you assign resources to. How do you see this applying to an individual employee or an individual contributor's perspective in terms of the things that they can be working on or, or what they are, what's on their plate? How how can this frugality principle apply at an individual level? I
1: think one of the best examples that I can come up with, because I think it's, it's an interesting anecdote, and I'll, I'll say that I, I don't know if this is still the case, but I think it's interesting is AWS, as you imagine, like, just in general, imagine there's data centers scattered around the world. In each data center, there's tons of machines, you know, EC2 specifically. There's thousands of machines and thousands of, you know, hundreds of data centers. Like they're, they're all over the place. And knowing when there are issues, whether they're networking issues or hardware issues or whatever else, is a challenging problem. There are many, many solutions inside of Amazon. Many you know, let's just say there's like 12 teams at least that will notice within, let's say, an hour that a section of our network went down. The section of you know part of EC2 went dark. The best, the fastest detector for a while was a Perl script written by, I think it was originally an SDE one, like entry level engineer was a Perl script that was just distributed through Cron and would just like essentially ping a bunch of other machines from other machines. And if it ever wasn't able to ping a machine, as in like just do a really quick like check on the machine, if it ever wasn't able to, to ping the machine, it just go quickly uh, create an alarm, create a ticket. That was the fastest alarm in all of EC2. Not the ones that were built by like eight engineers that would watch and like triangulate data from whatever else and merge it over a period of whatever and average the something... Like, no, 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 it's a Perl script that was written all of like, I don't know, I, I don't know how many days it took to write, but I, I created conference calls with Andy Jassy and his staff repeatedly because of a Perl script kicking off an email uh, or kicking off an alarm. And so I think that at an individual contributor level, what are you trying to accomplish? There are really pretty engineering solutions and frequently the pretty engineering solutions. Like when you think of pretty is like, oh, I love the design of that thing on the whiteboard. That takes a large amount of time and maybe it's appropriate. I think a lot of times when you think about what am I really, really trying to accomplish, you can get 80, 90% of what you're looking for from wildly less work. Like, you know, you're getting 90% of the solution mathematically from 10% of the work is obviously a really good ratio. And I think that a lot of engineers are focused on like, I want to build as pretty a solution as I can. So let me see what I can justify. Let me see what I can do. And I think the People who are successful in the long run are focused more on how do I get the majority of what we really need here? And maybe I can do it for really, really cheap. And that's what you see from a lot of the principles, in fact, sometimes is not just the coolest, biggest solutions they're doing. Actually, interesting anecdote. there was I was talking to someone at a different company who said that they had this really big deployment slash like build system that was very expensive, and they were trying to figure out a solution for it. And I essentially said like, oh, I remember like our principal was working on a very similar system trying to figure out a better way to do our build files. And he looked at me like I was crazy and said like, but why would you have principals work on like build systems? And I said, well, can you think of any other bigger lever for like making your team more efficient than having your build take go from two hours to five minutes? Of course, that's the best thing for someone to work on. Like it's an efficiency thing. It's a it's a getting more done with the resources you have. And they were saying, well, but I thought principles do complex things. i principles like, do efficient things. Principles are very efficient. They are good at accomplishing your business goals. And so I think that that's what, you know, as an entry-level engineer thinking, someday I'll be able to build more stuff complex. In some ways, you want to say, in the long run, I'm going to figure out how to accomplish these things so fast and so easily more than anyone else. And so um, I think that's a ni- nice way to think about it as an IC.
0: Things I think any of us can think about in terms of how we're managing our own day, what we're working on, and, and how not just what we want to be building, but how are we doing what we currently do? Like how how much time are we spending on our current processes? Zooming out again to an org level, I imagine that as a leader over an organization that might have its headcount fluctuating year over year up and down, there could potentially be concern from some employees around, hey, how lasting is my job in this team? How do you see this roadmap before resources approach to leading implicating uh, employee engagement?
1: I think that there's plenty of examples of teams going down and going up dramatically, but there's also value and consistency and and, um, your roadmap in many cases is not dramatically changing year over year because you have a lot of things that you are working on for multiple years. And so in some ways, like it's a great example to say, hey, we're going to knock your headcount down by 30% because you need to go on to life support now. But usually the way that happens is you are growing at 30%. The next year you grow by 20 and the next year you grow by 10 and then zero. Like, hey, you're staying flat next year. And by the way, the following year, you might be going down by one or down by two. Like it, it sort of happens over a trajectory because you see where things are going. And so um, I think for an en- like individual engineers or individual people on a team, it's more about like, hey, you're going to work on the China launch for Seller Central. They work on that for the next 18 months. As they're rolling off of it, it might be like, hey, we don't have any other big projects. Your promo is coming up soon. Um, Like you're you're sort of getting ready for a promotion. Uh, This project wasn't quite enough. But hey, have you considered this other guy's team? They're doing this interesting project similar to what you were doing. Maybe you should be over there. As a leader, I'm constantly, constantly thinking of like both individual people's trajectories, what projects are coming up because I can sort of, you know, see into the future uh, magically. Uh, You you look into the future and say, I think this is sort of where our team is going or our projects are going. This will probably be approved. We'll probably allocate resources to it. And it preferably, and it does end up disruptive once in a while, but preferably it just feels like a natural progression of where they were going. Um, The most disruptive frequently is for like the managers on the team, because again, individual engineers, there's so many opportunities for all over the place that as long as we're paying attention, like we don't cut their project off at the knees. We usually let things finish. And so it's just a matter of don't pick up that project, pick up this other one on this other team. It's the managers who get hit the hardest, like the line managers who get the har- hit the hardest by the um, changes. Just because again, that's either your team is at eight. And if you know you want to go to 14 and you know, if you go to 14, you get to hire ma- another manager, you know, sort of like a breaking point of 12 to uh, 10 to 12 people. You get to hire a manager working for you. And that's a very important promotion cutoff line for managers is being able to have a manager work for you. If they said, Hey, I want to go up to 14, maybe 16, and they're thinking this is my chap, you know, this is my shot. This year I get to start managing a manager. This will be a new thing in my career. Then we say, Never mind, you're actually gonna stay at eight. It's just like, oh, oh, there goes my whole hope of this next 12 months being new and exciting. And certainly the other side of like I was at 14 people, I'm going to need to drop down to 10. It's like, oh, man, I might have to like, get one of my teams to go away, consolidate everything. Like it becomes very disruptive when that happens. But again, vast majority of years, you just increase your headcount by one person, maybe two, like nothing massive has to change. It's just in some situations that does happen. But again, it's, it's, uh you know, it's, it's business not for fun. And so if I don't think, you know, again, it's at every level, right? I have the parent website, Uh, and I have 14 people allocated to it. And I'm like, Hey, I I just don't believe in any of these big projects that we're working on are going to move the needle. But I have so many other things I want to spend money on. Terribly sorry, team, Uh, we're gonna have to figure out a path for you guys to shrink. Like, let's start talking about who moves, who stays. Maybe we switch managers along the way to a different manager who doesn't need, you know, like this kind of career opportunity. And so I did actually go through a number of years where both the headcount changed pretty dramatically, and we moved a whole lot of people around. Like, we did some big shuffles of management switches and project manager switches and engineers because everyone needed to land in a place um, where they could feel like they were still growing, like they were still doing and growing in the way that they wanted to grow, which, you know, it's, it's a very personal thing.
0: So, it sounds like, Dave, one of the core requirements for this to work well is to have a culture where you see the employees and you develop employees that are very fungible they're not too specialized where they're really just hired to do one specific thing on one specific project. But there's somebody that, you know, when that project tapers off, and there's something else you need, they would also be a great contributor on that. And maybe even at the manager level as well, right? Yeah. Where maybe if a team gets reduced, that person could still as a career next step, go be a manager for another team and still be successful in that area. So, so that, that kind of cultural aspect of being, Willing to move people around sounds like one requirement to make this frugality principle really successful. Are there other kind of watch outs or dangers that an organization should think through if they're going to really have this constraints based approach to running the organization?
1: Yeah, I, I think that in absence, uh, you know, thinking of one more thing that, that matters. I, I mentioned the example of reducing headcount and seller central, and I was changing the projects allocated, right? If you just introduce constraints and don't allow for the resourcefulness you don't allow for self-sufficiency or innovation then you're not getting the other half and that's the other half that's like the, the steam release valve if you have a team that is feeling the pain of on-call and you don't provide them a way to fix it you're not like getting the benefits out of frugality you're just getting the drawbacks you're getting the saving money but not the actual innovation the fun parts of, of this for example like, i'm thinking of the qa team for the kids devices was was a, an example where we had a request and headcount for a bunch of manual testing. And that headcount was ballooning because as we got more devices, more things, we needed more people to sit there and click buttons on the tablet, which is a really ugly way of testing things. And we said, okay, like we can't afford to go spend you know 50% of our increased headcount on just manual testers. It just doesn't scale. Like This is not a thing that we want to do. So we're going to need to do automation and automation is hard and it takes time to set up so one let's allocate some of that headcount not to manual testers but to engineers two we need to recognize that because we won't have nearly as many manual testers as we want we can't have the coverage we will not have the coverage of testing that we would have had with a bunch of manual testers like we need you need to accept the pain point of constraints and so i said cool Now let's start going through our project list and say, what will not be manually tested? What will we have to cut off our roadmap? What will we have to do less of so that we can still deliver a high quality product, but without all the manual testing? And that was like something really hard to get through people's heads, Where they said like, we have to manually test every one of these launches. I'm like, we don't have the headcount for it. No, that's not an option. I don't want to spend the headcount on it and no one should work the weekends to manually test things. We can't just say work harder. So what will, you know, and so we started making agreements on, okay, this project is low impact. Let's just not manually test it. Let's only do automation, skip all the manual testing, close our eyes and hope for the best because it's lower impact. For this other thing, how about we say that you know the dev team itself will manually test? It's a good opportunity for them to build some automation, and it'll force them to see what it takes to manually test their product. I think it's a good learning experience. And we will have them do less project work. We will give their project more timeline or less features. You sort of work through the impacts of the frugality you're imposing. But that allows resourcefulness to happen on the team when they say, oh, hmm, like how do I deal with the fact that my team has three times less testing than before? You know, the self-sufficiency of like, I want your team to be successful and you have less people. What are you going to do? Like, what do you do? And I don't like the throwing your hands up in the air and saying, well, I'm screwed then. Like, that, that's no excuse. Like, come on, what are you going to do? Come up with a solution, impress us all. And the invention, which comes from, hmm, interesting, I have a lot fewer people to test than before. And I know the next year that's going to keep going. What can I invent so that we are not we are in a really good position two years from now? And so uh, that's what you have to have is the other side of things.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds like you really need to be willing to think outside the box. And it, it feels like it ties in a little bit with the think big principle too, right? Like if the team is thinking big and being creative around approaches, you know, it might not be thinking big in terms of how big will the next business be. It might be thinking big in terms of how creative can we get and yeah. being more efficient. So I really like that. Dave just to, just to wrap up this topic with a hypothetical question if you were scaling a business outside of Amazon how would you think about implementing the frugality principle
1: I think in some ways the framework that Amazon has set up works really well in that you want each leader to feel like they have ownership over how their money is spent and so i think that you know it's like a core aspect of this is you know thinking of me running tech for the kids product when I'm handed some amount of money and saying this is about how much your business is valued to us right now, we, we want to see the tech team go up by 15%. You've convinced us that you should grow a little bit. You have a lot of value still to add in general. Like your, your story sounds good of where you want to take this business. And then you give me the ownership to say you can be super successful or moderately successful based on how you spend that. Like You, you know that as a leader is like how I spend this drastically changes the trajectory of my team. And then give you credit for how your team ends up like, you know, it's sort of a a combination of like, what is the, you know, you you get this money to spend, you're evaluated on what the results are. Now, what are you going to do with that, you make some decisions at your level. And the expectation, again, that every level does the same thing, and you put the expectation of output on the leader, and then let them do the right thing. Because again, that distributed ownership means a lot. But that's the kind of, you know, mechanisms I'd want to set up in sort of like the leadership expectations of a leader makes some important decisions and delegates important decisions to the team members. And you care more about the output than exactly what's going to be done. You care less about like it. You have to be clear to everyone it's not about what you had last year. It's not about a percent increase. It's about this is how much you should have investment wise from the business. You know, again, we're like a VC saying, "Hey, we'll give you forty million dollars. Go spend it. Right? It's, it's not. These are the seventy-four line items I approved. It's make us successful. And if everyone views each team, each manager, each leader views themselves as a startup, then you're working as of I mean, it. That sort of makes the things happen. You see innovation. You see people coming up with new ideas because everyone loves to when they feel like they have ownership. If they have that autonomy, then they have the ability to make some really cool decisions."
0: Yeah. Those sound like really good cultural considerations that probably any business should be thinking through and help really wrap up this conversation that we've had here. Dave, I, I feel like we could talk all day about this principle. And the, the reality is that you write about a lot of different principles on scarletink.com. What topics can readers look forward to hearing more from you about on Scarlet Inc.? I don't know why it came
1: about, but I had a few different people contact me in the last few days asking about skip level one-on-ones. And it's a bit of a specific topic, but I do think the more I was paying attention to why the questions were asked, it was like people saying, hey, I'm going to have a skip level with my VP. You know, that's the one-on-one going up two levels and saying, uh, what do I bring up? What are the topics I should discuss? And I was thinking through it. There is a pretty drastic difference between the people who came to me with good topics and the people who came to me with like, what is this person thinking? Like, why are they bringing that to me? And so uh, I think I might end up writing about that topic today. We'll, we'll see. Sort of discuss like, why do you bring certain topics up? Like, what is it worth talking to your skip manager about versus the things you probably don't want to talk to them about?
0: Awesome. So for those listening, check out scarletinc.com. Hear more from Dave. And Dave, thanks again for coming back on the show and talking more about Frugality and your experience at Amazon and some of these great principles that you're helping other businesses think about drawing from your experience. So thanks again.
1: Thanks, Tyler.